as we move into the text. Oh, that's a friendship. So I thank you. Thanks, Jesse. Um, so when I was uh, doing junior high ministry, there are these girls who, who cleverly drew that on their, on their wrist and um, with marker, like that bleeds a lot. And then they would stamp each other's wrists. And I got a stamp. So I was part of their friendship group. It was great. So my question, uh, you guys could break off in twos or threes. We do this almost every week at Renew is who is or will be your best man or bride or maid of honor and why? You can't include family. So it has to be someone outside family. And um, if you don't have an immediate answer to this question, my second question would be what allows you to go from uh, someone in your life to go from a friend to a close friend? Like what defines that gap for you? Okay, so what, what makes someone go from a friend to a close friend? And or if you have a best man or maid of honor on top of your head, why, why did you choose that person? All right, you guys have three minutes. <clears throat> All right, thanks for sharing, everyone. Um, when I think about the, the guys who stood with me on my wedding and also many of the close friends I've developed over the last few years, I, I think that, you know, if, if I were to put in the category, who do I hang out with, enjoy a craft beer with, play volleyball with, laugh with, there's like dozens of people, right? Maybe hundreds of people that I enjoy hanging out with, that I enjoy their personality. I love being with them. I love um, sharing hobbies with them. But when you siphon that, that down to who am I vulnerable with? Who has seen me at my worst? Who has uh, been willing to walk with me when I wasn't doing well? when I was uh, in depression or when I was, was crippled, that list becomes much more small. And I feel like it's the hard times often that define the people who are closest with us, not just hearing about it, but being with us in it. You know, two of the worst moments of my life was first when I was younger, uh, I tore my ACL playing basketball, and then I tore it again and one more time. So I tore more ACLs than I actually have. But the first time I went through surgery, they cut me really uh, deep open. They took my meniscus, uh, replaced my ACL with it. And I was bedridden, I think, for uh, over a month. And I remember my leg atrophying so much that I could wring my leg with my thumb and my finger. So it was literally this small, my thigh. And um, and it was the first time where I couldn't go out to play basketball. I couldn't go to movies. I couldn't go have lunch with my friends. I was totally homebound. And I just remember the friends who came and were willing to spend their summer with me, you know, in my room doing nothing. My best One of my best friends, his name's Caleb, uh, almost every day he would just come over and sit next to the bed with me. We would talk. Then we get bored of talking. There was no Netflix or Hulu, so we just kind of sit. And then the most exciting part of our day was when I had to use the restroom, and he could help me up to go pee and then help me back in the bed. And that was, like, the highlight, right? Like, oh, when are you going pee next, you know? Like, that was, like, really exciting. And um, he was willing to do that, not just for a day or two, but every day. Um, he would come over and he just spent a whole, uh, a big part of his summer with me. Um, I remember 2009 going through depression. I broke up with a girlfriend of four and a half years. 
and just really, just really down about that. Um, doing poorly in seminary, I kept failing Greek. Um, I, I was diagnosed with ADD after I failed Greek the first time, and then I took Adderall and I failed it again. So I couldn't even blame like you know it wasn't ADD's fault; it was just me. So that was sad. And then uh, me and my lead pastor, we had a lot of conflicts during that time. And I remember just falling into depression. You know, my therapist was really concerned. And, um, and I just couldn't get out of bed. There were things that I loved doing, like mountain biking or ministry, that just totally lost its appeal. I could not get out of bed for even the things that I loved most. And I think about the friends who were with me then as well, who came to visit me, who um, I stopped reaching out to but never gave up texting me. And those are the moments in my mind throughout my life the markers for which friends were the deepest and most significant, who who went from a Facebook friend or someone I grew up with or someone that you know I, I liked hanging out with to becoming one of my bri- one of my groomsmen, uh, someone that I wanted to do life with long term. I think when I look at um, this passage in Matthew chapter nine, I see the paralytic men man having friends like that. And so we're going to take two movements here as we look at Matthew chapter 9, verse 1 through 7. The first movement is speaking about friendship and envisioning a community here that are friends beyond playing together, even though that's really important, beyond shared hobbies, even though that's really important, but friends that would carry us to Jesus when we can't get there on our own. And then the second movement here is on Jesus speaking about him forgiving sin and also healing this man who is lame. So we're gonna, it's, it's a combo sermon. It's a double feature. We'll be here for an hour and a half. Jesus stepped into the boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man laying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your heart? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to man. We're going to sit on the first couple of verses. Jesus um, being in this crowded room, there were these four friends who had a paralyzed friend and he, they brought him to Jesus. And, and when they saw that the room was filled in the Mark account, they actually walked up to the roof. They dug a hole, uh, property damage, you know, and then they lowered their friend down in front of Jesus. And it says that Jesus saw their faith. I think they saw, he saw the faith of the friends. He saw the faith of the paralyzed man. And one thing that I want us to conceptualize, even though we live in an individualistic society, is that there's aspects of our faith that is communal. There's aspects of our faith in some ways that we share, or maybe in a way, another way of thinking about it is like, 
there's kind of a default line in our community, a default average of how much we trust in God, how passionate we are for him, how much we love sharing the gospel or reading his word. And we're all kind of drawn towards this this line. And for those of us who might be struggling, there's this push to to kind of do better and to and to strive harder. And for those of us who are doing really well, sometimes we kind of can actually feel pulled down that there's a faith and trust in the Lord that we share. And and this shared experience oftentimes can bring people to the Lord. And maybe in some communities actually draw people away from him. But I also love the friendship that is here where these men were friends with someone who wasn't that fun to be friends with. You know, they were, they were good friends because as this man was paralyzed, he had nothing going for him. He couldn't do much during that time in that society. Um, there were very few jobs he could take on. He probably asked for charity for most of his life. And also there was this association that because you're paralyzed, there might be a sin. Uh, people saw that oftentimes in Jewish culture as like being cursed. And so there are even fewer people willing to interact with him. But these men surrounded him. And in the places where he couldn't get to Jesus, in the places where he felt a disconnect or a chasm physically and maybe spiritually to be able to come before the Lord, his friends brought him at the feet of Christ. And I wonder if we have those kinds of friends who when we feel like there's barriers or blockades in our life between where we are and where Jesus is, do we have friends who care enough for us to pick us up from where we're at and to walk us to God in faith? Do we have spiritual friendships that we've invested in who we care our bond in, in Christ and in loving Jesus is greater than any other bond. And because I'm friends with you, I love Jesus more. Because you're friends with me, I want to pursue holiness harder. But I also think about the man who was paralyzed because it's very vulnerable to let someone pick you up. It's very vulnerable to say that you need help. It's very vulnerable to say, man, I can't get there on my own. And again, I wonder if we have a community who, who are willing to allow our spiritual vulnerabilities to be known. To say, man, I just can't get there. Can you pray for me? Can you uh, share a story with me? Can you bring me to Jesus? You know, when I think about Renew, when I think about our family, um, one of the greatest aspects of what it means to be a part of this church is that there are relationships here that go beyond Sunday service. You know, we love being together and some of our closest friendships are in this room. I was, I love, I love Instagram, you know, and, uh, last, just yesterday I see people in our community going to Joshua Tree, karaoke, swimming together, you know, um, cooking food together. And, um, and that's like one day, right? And then I think about last week, um, paddle boarding or hiking and we just love doing life together. 
And that should be how church is. It shouldn't be a Sunday service event. It shouldn't be my church friends and everyone else in my life. And I just think it's a miracle when, when we first started Renew and it was like 40 people who knew each other for six months or less, nine months or less. And then we added another 50, 60 people. It just felt like strangers. You know, if you remember those first couple months and even maybe year when we started Renew, I would come up on stage and I didn't really know anyone. I felt like I was a guest speaker. And a lot of you guys might have just one or two friends here, but it didn't feel like a family. People kind of came in and left. But now, um, you know, some of us spend all of Sunday together and then spend the rest of the week together. There's this sense that we're family that we care, that we know each other's stories, that we're a part of each other's lives. And, and we've been through stuff. We've gone to the hospital. We've walked through depression. We've celebrated weddings and births. We've allowed each other to stay in, in our homes. And we've, a lot of us have become close friends. And yet I hope that we can see these friendships and say, but they're different than the other friends. And it's not just because we hang out more or have more fun together, but because we draw each other closer to Jesus. I think there's like this growing desire in my heart where how we interact and have conversation and play would be more and more intentional in bringing healing and in bringing uh, for each other and into the city. For, say, for putting God in the conversation and saying, hey, let's hang out, but be cognizant of Jesus being with us and pointing to him and enjoying nature and um, all of these things with Jesus, bringing him in. And then I think about the hardest times and what it looks like for us to be a community that carries each other to Christ. And so... um Okay, I'm just going to go through these quickly. But when I look at long-term friendships, I think about what it means to stay close in the hurt and hard times. What it means to see someone hurting in our community instead of avoiding them, to draw closer to them. And knowing that these are the moments, right, that define true friendship. And then sometimes the hard time isn't him or me, but it's us. And what it looks like to have hard and honest conflict resolution conversations with each other and to forgive each other. When I look at these long-term relationships, there's two things that really define it. One is that they were with me in the most difficult moments. But the second thing is I can point at each of my friends and remember specific times where we had conflict, but decided to work things out, decided to forgive and to look each other in the eye and to talk about it and to want, want each other to be better so that we can move forward instead of pressing the eject button. And there's an asterisk there because sometimes some relationships become toxic and abusive. So there's times where you end a relationship. But I see people do it far too often and far too easily, thinking that there's someone else or another group that's going to be easier or better. And I just think, man, like if you can't, I've seen people who haven't worked things out in this relationship and they go to the next relationship and there's the same issues there. At some point, you're going to get to know that person and they're going to suck, right? At some point, they're going to get to know you and they're going to see all of your flaws and brokenness. And, if, and then they eject that relationship, go to the next relationship, same problems. 
And when I think about the friendships that have gone through 20 or 10 or 5 years, I think about those moments where not only they walked with me in my hard times, but moments where we decided to, to work through hard times together. And then the second part is um, thinking about what it means to friendship each other to Jesus, like as a teleportation tool. Does that make sense? Like a priest, right? A priest is someone who stands with the people and say, how do I close the gap between the people or this person and God? How do I bring this person toward Jesus, toward the Father? A prophet is someone who stands with God and says, how do I represent God in bringing God to the person? And then a king, uh, he organizes this person's life so that's just a little easier and better. They, they look a little bit kind of externally. So these are Old Testament roles. And the system I've put together, I put biblical words to it, but it's not really biblical. I kind of put it together in the last 10 minutes of sermon prep. But I've noticed that this is what I do often. And I felt like, you know, if I put prophet, priest, and king, people might take me more seriously. Okay, so this is how I often uh, carry people to Jesus. And, and there's going to be people in your life that I can't carry that I don't have access to, or I don't have uh, the time with them or the trust. And so I hope that all of us would, that part of our life skill as believers would be how to pastor well. Because God has called you to pastor your coworkers, your friends, your family in ways that I'll never be able to do. And, and in some ways, I'm not even called to. So here's how you uh, pastor well. Um, so first, I always, there's actually a process here. So I start with priest, I move down to prophet, and then uh, I go king. And what it looks like is um, I'll sit with someone, regardless of what they're struggling with. Maybe it's a sin, an addiction issue. Maybe they're wrestling with depression, anxiety. Maybe they feel lost um, in their spiritual life or in their occupational life. And I'll, my, my goal as a priest is to sit in their space, right? So think about a friend that's hurting and that needs you. you first, you sit in their space with them. And you're, you, you listen for as long as you possibly can. I, I, I have a, I'm worse at priests. We all kind of have leanings. Priest is my weakest, but I've spent a lot of time trying to get better at it. So you, you sit with them. You're present with them. And you're trying to see life through their lens, through their struggle, through their story. You're trying to understand why, how they got here and how they're perceiving um, the people and the obstacles around them, how they're perceiving God. And as a priest, as you're in their space and listening and, and showing empathy and allowing them to pull you into sadness or hurt or anger, right? Because that's what a priest does. They, they're... They're in that space with you. I think that's one of the greatest gifts you can give someone is you're saying, hey, I care about you so much, I'm willing to be sad. That if I ever cry for you, you're like, oh my gosh, Wilson, you love me so much because I hate being sad, but I like you so much, I'll be sad with you, right? That's such a great gift. A priest does that really well. They're willing to be sad with you and see things through your eyes and hear your story for as long as it takes. I, I try to do that first. 
And then from your perspective, as I sit with you, or from their perspective, as you sit with them, what does it look like for them to just take one more step towards Jesus? And when they feel loved and cared for, when they feel heard, and when you really see things through their lens, you're able to give something precise and caring and gentle. You're not putting a bar above them that feels unobtainable, right? You're not saying, hey, this is where I am in this journey. Be here. This is where that super Christian is. Be there. No, you understand where they're at. And you're like, what if you just did this one thing? What if you just prayed this one prayer and and it's filled with doubt and struggle and hurt, but you're still talking to God? What does that look like? What does it look like to just take that one step in faith? So as priests, we do that. And then I, uh, I might spend one or two or five conversations there, depending on where they're at, how much they need me to get it, how much I need to get it. You, you know you're a priest when, when you start feeling things and when you stop being judgmental, right? You, you haven't been in their space if you're judging them because that means you still don't get it. You're, you still don't understand why they think the way they think. You're just, you just think it's ridiculous. It's stupid. Why can't they get over themselves? But when you're really in their space, I've never really been in someone's space, heard their story, felt what they felt, and then judged them. Does that make sense? Because I, I get it. Most people are, are rational. Most people, most people have a history that, that informs why they see things, and, and it usually makes sense. So I'm sitting in their space. I understand, I feel it, and I, take a, I try to take a step towards the Lord. I try to friendship them <laughs> toward Jesus. And then um, the prophet role, it does take some spiritual maturity, uh, discernment, uh, knowing scripture well. But as you grow in those things for your own life, as you grow in your, those things and saying, I'm not just praying to God, I'm listening to God, as I pray, I'm not just reading scripture, but the scripture is being applied to my life. I see the truth in it for me. Then you gift that to those around you. So a priest sits with the person trying to take a person closer to the Lord. But the prophet is really looking at this person with kindness, love, gentleness, because that's how God sees all of us. And saying, what does God see in this person? And in their circumstance. And oftentimes a prophet is someone who's able to speak truth in a way where the person can receive it. Is, is really speaking almost in the place of God um, as, as a conduit of his voice, right? And we're not going to be perfect in that. We're not infallible. But still, you're, you're saying, God, as I look from your lens to this person, what are you trying to say to them? How do I echo your voice into their life? What are you saying that they can't, just can't hear? What do they believe that, that is untrue? And so after I'm a priest and hopefully I have their trust and I've empathized and they know I care, at some point I could become a prophet into their life. That's really in some ways my role as a pastor to each of you, right? I'm to be um, someone who speaks the word of God into your life, whether you want to hear it or not. Now, no one likes prophets. Everyone likes priests more, right? Priests are nice. They're cuddly. They put their arm around you. Prophets, 
even though they they can speak in love and kindness, which many of my friends have done in wisdom, and it's it's palatable, it doesn't feel judgmental. I still don't want to hear it a lot of times. I don't want to hear truth. I just want them to agree with the lies that I'm holding close to my in my heart. And but when I look at again my close friends, oftentimes when I'm struggling with something, the friend that speaks truth. Although it hurts in the moment and I want to distance myself, when I look back, I, I value them to high regard, right? When you look back, I mean, in the moment, that friend is like, okay, I'm not talking to them about this anymore. But when you look back and they were right and they spoke it well and they cared about you, don't you elevate them more? Aren't they, don't they become the voices that you seek after? Because they didn't just agree with you. They didn't just nod. They didn't just take your side, but they desired better. They desired truth to be, um, to be thought of as they spoke. And lastly, the king is someone who looks at this person's life and they arrange it, um, in ways that are, are better for them. You know, maybe it's helping them through an exercise plan. Maybe it's helping them with their job interview skills or their resume. Maybe it's giving them resources or it's helping them manage their time a little bit better. Um, I like jumping to King, you know, like I, I, that's like my favorite thing is to problem solve. Like you didn't share your heart with me. You shared problems and I can solve them. But um, again, if we don't do prof- priest first, if we're not listening and uh, hearing God's voice and direction in their life, uh, oftentimes the king part doesn't really work, to be honest, because they're not ready for change, right? They're just hurting, and you haven't sat with them. And, and it feels really cold and disconnected to give solutions. But when we can get there, and um, sometimes it takes a long, long time to become king, to not king of their lives, but to operate as a king in terms of uh, function, to give ideas, to give um, like a, a checklist maybe. forgot why I put that symbol up there, but I made up a solution. Um, you could bless people that way too. All right. So, you know, when, when, when I think about our church, I think we're, we're, we can often be pretty good priests. We sit, we listen well, we empathize well. But at the end of us listening, is the solution me or is it Jesus? Am I try, trying to draw them toward me or am I trying to carry them to Jesus? You know, and, and then I think how much we can grow in, as a generation in speaking truth to each other in ways, again, that are kind and, and gracious and wise. But are we willing to say, hey, I care about you so much that when I see this lie, I really don't want you to believe in it. I think, I think Satan's lying to you here. And, and it's destroying you. This, believe this instead. Believe the scripture instead. Believe what the Lord is saying to you instead. Because when I see someone struggling, it's like they're being pulled in two directions. And I want to pull with, with Jesus, right? What does that look like for them? I think as a community, we can grow there as well. And so I'm praying for us. I'm praying that at the end of the day, when we're struggling, like this man who is paralyzed, he, wasn't, he didn't put his hope on his friends. And we shouldn't put our hope on each other. As good as our community is, as close as we are, we're not going to, we can't bring healing. We can't bring forgiveness. We can't really carry each other 
um, the long distance. What we can do is often and intentionally point to Jesus. What we can do is say, hey, there's someone out there who loves you more than me, who's with you more than me, who is more powerful than I am. And, and I think, you know, there's times in the life of our church where I feel like we've been crushed by the expectation of others. We've been crushed because we've tried to lift them up. We've tried to pull them out of depression. We've tried to make sure they're included all the time. Or we, we've put our hope in, in being fully accepted and known and loved here. But we can't carry people and they can't carry us um, long distance. Ultimately, all we can do is give each other to the Lord. Are we doing that well? Or does it stop and start with us? Um, some questions that we don't have time for you to go through today. But how can you and are you friendshiping your friends to Jesus? See that? I just went with it. I just went with it through all the slides. Uh, thank you. Are you more of a priest, prophet, or king? So we kind of have these tendencies. But where do you need to grow? And also, uh, in praying for each other today, I hope we are able to do that. How can we practice all three? All right, let's go back to the passage. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Blaspheming. I ran out of, of air. Um, it's a long word. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk. Now, I want us to think about the scene. These friends have carried their paralyzed friend maybe miles. They've climbed a roof with him, which is really dangerous. They've committed property damage by digging a hole through a roof. They lower it to Jesus. And the whole time, the whole time they're thinking, Jesus is going to help my friend to walk, right? That's, that's what they're anticipating. Jesus has the power to heal my friend. And then what does Jesus say? He says, son, your sins are forgiven, doesn't that feel out of nowhere and insulting and upsetting? Like if I was the friends, I'd be like, man, that's a disappointment. You know, we didn't, we obviously did not come here for this man's sin. The temple's right there. I have a few birds. We could make that happen, but we need this guy to walk again, right? Like why can't, why didn't Jesus do that first? And, and why did he leave them hanging? I wonder when we look at our lives, um, do we see it and our pain and our brokenness, do we see it the same way Jesus sees it? That when Jesus saw this man, he, he knew that he, he wanted to walk. But what he, what he saw first and foremost and most importantly is that beyond not being able to walk physically, this man needed his sins forgiven. That that took precedence in the eyes of Jesus. And I wonder, when we go to Jesus, is that the most important thing we want and need from him? Or are we bringing up everything else? And we're saying, God, I, I actually need this. This is what's more, most important. Please heal me right here. And Jesus sees us, and he's like, actually, the most important thing you need in this moment isn't, isn't these things around you to change is not for this to go away. It's not for you to stop feeling this. The most important thing is that you're forgiven. 
you know, this man, if he was just healed physically, it would be great. I mean, he'd be super excited to run, to play tag, to go to work. But what happens when he turns 82 or 91? Everything else we can ask for starts to fade at the end of our lives. But forgiveness, forgiveness is what allows us to be with Jesus for eternity. Forgiveness is what gives us um, grace and friendship with Jesus in this life and the next. It fills the deepest needs of our heart. And I, I wonder if they knew that that was most important. I wonder if we know that our deepest need is for forgiveness. This, um, they accuse him of blaspheming the teachers of the law, which really meant they wanted him executed. And then Jesus says, why are you entertaining these evil thoughts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? What's the answer there? What's easier to say, uh, sins are forgiven, or get up and walk? Who's, who thinks sins are forgiven is easier? Raise your hand. We have a few people. Who thinks give up, get up and walk is easier? Raise your hand. All right. Um, there's an answer to this. And it falls in this um, philosophical argument. It says if something is more difficult can be achieved, then this guarantees that the validity of the claim something of something less difficult, right? So what is more difficult here, I think, is saying uh, get up and walk. So you guys are right. Why is that? Because if Nick is crippled and I say, Nick, your sins are forgiven, does anyone really know if that's true, right? Like, there's no empirical evidence of that. So it's easier, it's not easier to to do your sins are forgiven, but it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because I may or may not have that power. Who really knows? But if Nick is crippled and I say, get up and walk, and he does that, that's a lot harder to say because then there's an expectation. But Jesus... He says, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take up your mat, and go home. So he does what's harder to say. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to man. So Jesus challenges the teachers of the law, challenges the crowd and says, well, anyone can say your sins are forgiven. No one really knows if that happened or not. But almost no one can say get up and walk to a paralyzed man. I'm going to do the second to verify the first. Now, what's interesting here is the word crowd. And we've come to this word a few times in our our preaching. uh, Matthew uses this term, this word in the Greek, very intentionally, and he uses it 50 times in the Gospel of Matthew. He uses this word crowd to delineate the difference between a disciple who has given their life to Jesus and a Pharisee who's usually challenging him. The crowd is kind of stuck in the middle. They're still making the decision for whether they want to follow Jesus or not. But what's sad here is that the crowd witnesses this amazing event. A Messiah who doesn't just calm the winds and waves and cast out demons and heal someone who's crippled, but a Messiah who could forgive sins. That's a big deal. 
There's a lot of prophets who did other things in the Old Testament. None of them, Elijah, Moses, none of them directly forgave someone's sins. This was, this was totally unique to Jesus. I think that Jesus depends on the Spirit in the lifetime of his ministry, that he doesn't exercise any of his divine power to do miracles because he's exemplifying what a man fully dependent on the Spirit uh, looks like. But I think this is a moment where he exercises his divinity, where he forgives this man's sin. Now, what's sad to me is, is Matthew chapter 11, right? So Matthew chapter 11 is Jesus um, judging all these cities that he had spoken at and done miracles in. Now, remember, at the end of um, this, at the end of chapter verse 7, it says that they were filled with awe. They praised God, and they recognized that God had given Jesus authority. So it sounds like it's such a positive ending to the story. But now look at chapter 11. And you, Capernaum, which is where Jesus is at doing these miracles, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. You know, when I think about the crowd here, they, they witnessed the miracle. They heard the teachings of Jesus. Maybe they gathered together because they enjoyed the community. There was something hyped about this man who was born and raised here, coming back, able to do stuff. But they never gave their life to Jesus. They never asked him for forgiveness. We could be, we could come to church for a long time. We could feel included into this community. We could even read scripture and know it well. We could even witness God's miracles and never ask him for what our greatest need is. Never ask him to forgive us. Never say, God, I want to follow you. You know, the crazy thing is that when Jesus gets executed and in, the, in him going into Jerusalem, the crowds dissipate. They all choose a side. And most of them chose to shout crucify him. I hope that, um, I hope that in some ways that renew, for those of you who are still making a decision whether to follow Jesus or not, um, I hope in, in, in some ways we could just journey with you, allow you to ask questions. We have Alpha set up for you to kind of walk through some of the basics of the Christian faith. But I hope that in other moments, we would allow you to decide. We would give you an opportunity to say, hey, um, I've seen a lot of what God's done for others. But now I want him to forgive me. I want it to become personal. I want, I want to follow him and to live my life for him. I want, I want to bring to him my greatest need, which is, Man, I've, I've done wrong in my life. You know, it, our greatest need isn't to de- be delivered from all these other things. Even with this man who have, has been crippled for so many years, Jesus still didn't see that as his greatest need. His greatest need is forgiveness. Our greatest need is forgiveness. 
And, and I think about that for those of us who are in the crowd, but I also think about that for us who have followed Jesus for a long time. When I look at my life and I take inventory of this week, there was a lot of things that I needed, right? I needed the IRS to clear my tax return. I got really nervous about that. 21 days was up five days ago. I, I needed um, me and Nina to continue to communicate and, and grow in our relationship. I needed Liam to be healthy, but I, through this passage, I still recognize that my greatest need this week was that Jesus forgive me. My greatest need this week was that Jesus would have, would, that I would continue to have a relationship with him. And that out of his forgiveness and redemption, out of my relationship with him, would I then bless my marriage and bless my child and bless our community and ministry? That those things don't take precedence. I wonder if today, as we close up, that we would commit in our friendships to say, let's primarily and intentionally bring each other to the Lord. That we would be priests and kings and prophets for each other. Um, That we would see the gaps in our lives to Jesus and say, hey, would you carry me past this gap? Would you have faith when I can't? And will we do that for the people next to us? And secondly, my prayer is that our greatest need again, whether, we've dis- whether we're still deciding to follow Jesus or whether we followed him a- for a long time, when-, when we see him look at us, our first thing would be, God, forgive me and help me to follow and be in love with you. That, that would always be first. Father, we come to you and um, we pray that we would see our need for forgiveness this morning. That that is our greatest need and all other needs come out of that. Help us to take our eyes off of our legs take our eyes off of that girl or guy we want to like us, take our eyes off of our baby, take our eyes off of our depression, anxiety, and put our eyes on you, Jesus. And to say, God, would you forgive me and heal me? I would love for us just to take a minute or two to pray for each other and to take communion. Have you seen your need for forgiveness this week as the most important aspect of Jesus' healing in your life? Wrong your. And also pray f- his forgiveness for over each other's life. I would just love in this moment for us to experience each other as priests and prophet. Um, to pray over each other his forgiveness. And that that would take precedence. And then as, after we pray for those things, will we just stand and take communion together? as a tangible symbol of Jesus' forgiveness, of him dying to cross for us. He doesn't just say forgiveness. He does it by walking up Calvary, allowing the nails to be driven through his wrists, allowing the crown of thorns to be pushed against his, his uh, forehead, taking on our accusations and saying, I forgive you by shedding my blood, by breaking my body. And and that's what Jesus guarantees to all of us, right? 
He doesn't tell his disciples, you're going to have big homes. You're never going to wrestle with mental illness. Your family is going to love you. He actually says, you're going to be persecuted. You might be kicked out by your family members. You're going to go through hard times. But the most important thing is guaranteed. I forgive you. I love you. You're my kid. I will be with you. I hope that this morning that would take precedence in all of the other needs and that we would receive that need from him. All right, would you pray for each other and take communion together?